You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. It's a nice distraction from the evil sorcerer that keeps me trapped in this tower. I'm Sarah Gailey. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 76, Farm to Table Fantasy. Welcome back, listeners, to episode 76 of the podcast, and we are very excited today to welcome Sarah Gailey. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are excited, too. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work? I would love to. Um, I am an author of fiction and nonfiction of all genres and lengths. Most recently, I'm the author of the novel The Echo Wife, my original comic series Eat the Rich, and my upcoming horror novel Just Like Home. That's a lot. So Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so what is um what is your favorite thing about world building? We like to ask our guests this. Like what do you enjoy about the process of building worlds and warping worlds that already exist and all that kind of fun stuff? You know, I'm. Oh, are we? Are, are we swearing podcast? Are we indecent? <laughs> yes. Okay, all right, good. Yes. So, <laughs> fond of swearing. Yes. So anyone who who knows me will know that I am perpetually on my bullshit, and my answer to that question is going to just just continue in that tradition. Uh, my favorite thing about world building is that when we imagine new worlds, it enables us to see the ways in which the world we live in is not inevitable, the ways in which we can build something new in the world we inhabit and the ways in which the limitations we set on ourselves in that area are completely fabricated and often fabrications of oppressors. That is gorgeously put. I love that. I'm going <laughs> to uh, give that to students next semester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is fantastic. What would you say is a good example from your own work of a spot that you pushed back on the limitations of this world and chose oh new new horizons. I think my short fiction always showcases that best. Uh, my, my longer fiction has a tendency to be very interpersonal and internal, which are very nice ways to say, you know, kind of wrapped up in the individual. But my short fiction, I tend to get a lot more global and, and social. I think that a short story that I have, Drones to Plowshares, which came out uh, in 2020 with, uh, through Vice, is a story about a future surveillance state in which individual societies are reimagining the way that they can structure themselves around rehabilitating security enforcement drones. That was a, a short story that I wrote in a moment when socially everyone I knew, all of my circles, everyone who I follow on social media was talking about prison abolition, police abolition, and what a society without police would look like. And of course I immediately thought, well, we would need to rehabilitate so many people who've been used as tools of state oppression and state violence. What might that look like? And imagining the way that a society could build itself around that in Drugs to Plowshares is, I think, one of my favorite instances of world building that let me explore a, a way that things could be different. Ooh, I love that. I haven't read that. I'm going to have to look it up. See, this is part of, of why we do this podcast is to make our own TBRs longer and to um, foist more reading upon our listeners that they just have to get their hands on. So thank you for helping with that. It is so my pleasure. I need that one. I am a sucker for anything where 
like machines are rehabilitated. The the droid learns to love is one of my favorite tropes. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Excellent. So I feel like it it never takes fantasy authors long to come around to talking about food. And that's what we thought. Maybe what if we if we look at this concept of of food in fantasy? And I feel like fantasy loves food, and I think for good reason, because. If food touches everything and food can reveal so much and can be so much fun to play with and, and not just because we enjoy like reading and writing descriptions of food, but because it can show us so much about a world. I guess a question for y'all is what are some examples of food in fantasy that you think are just really fantastic or phenomenal or interesting or made you go, huh? I mean, I think it's partly because like the Venn diagram overlap of fantasy writers and cook from scratch foodies it's not a circle but it's deep <laughs> certainly i want to i would want to eat in every single restaurant in in fondalee's green bone saga every restaurant that <laughs> that exists in that place i want i want to eat all of Think it about the squid balls nonstop. <laughs> non-stop <laughs> also i i want to yeah i i think about those squid balls at least once a day i'm they live they live in that little room in my heart where all of the meals from any fantasy novel about small creatures lives where you're like drinking wine out of, out of an acorn cap and, and like the table is laid with with bread and cheeses and berries and i'm just like that and squid balls i could die happy you, you want to be an anthropomorphized mouse so you can eat all that. You don't want to be an anthropomorphized mouse. <laughs> no, yes that would be the best <laughs> My kids have a version of A Christmas Carol that it's mice. And it's like these like tiny little like Victorian Christmas like dinners, but it's like mouse sized. And there's like a little candied plum that one of them like carries around. And it's it's the most adorable thing in the world. And also it's pretty delicious. I, I often think about um, food in fantasy in everything that Charlie Jane Anders writes. She brings food like so thoroughly into her world building and especially in uh, her book city in the middle of the night there's so much exploration of how food defines culture i find the way that she does that little piece of world building to be completely seamless i mean the ideal is always to try and make it seamless to make it feel like it is just such an integral part of what the world is that you, that you would not even question. Like, of course, of course they have squid balls. Of course they're drinking wine out of an acorn. That's that's what you do. I mean, and I think the best world building is the kind of world building that never makes the reader stop and think of like, wait a minute, what? Why would they have potatoes? Should they have potatoes? That doesn't make sense to me or anything like that. I love when fantasy will have people engaging with food in like unusual places like it's not just ye kitchen and ye tavern like it delayed me to no end that in velocity of revolution by like page five they're like buying street tacos i'm like yes yes you know <laughs> that there are other places to like get food there's like street food or people are like pollen stahoff trees themselves because that's part of what they do or they're gardening or they're going to the magical farmer's market. I don't know. But like when it's not, you know, when you kind of break out of the box of we eat in our kitchens and our dining rooms or at ye long banquet table or in ye tavern, like there are other ways and places to like encounter food in the world. And how and why you're encountering the food and the presumptions that one has of what one eats when and when you eat in general during the day. And 
that those are fascinating things to unpack whenever you're building a culture, I think. I think we have this tendency to view eating in a fantasy setting, at, at least in my experience, through a very um, contemporary diet culture inflected lens that minimizes food and subtracts food from the day-to-day experience and subtracts the importance of it. And that assumes that people should eat a lot less than they should. It'll be like, our adventurer had one apple for breakfast and then didn't eat again until he caught a rabbit for dinner and ate one haunch off it. And I'm like, he's just walking around in the woods all day. Yeah. He's just <laughs> eating that stuff. Like, I really imagine like the like hunger headaches that like most heroes in these books must have. Like they're just hangry all the time. Like how does that's why some work? of them are so cranky. Yeah. <laughs> like just you, I mean, my boy needs calories. A sandwich. Like <laughs> I would also be making a lot of yelling speeches if I had not eaten all day and I had to ride on horseback. <laughs> And, like, I feel like they seldom acknowledge the messiness of, like, shooting a pigeon and then eating it. That's, that's a lot of work. There's steps. That's, that's, I mean, I, I, have, I, I have butchered a chicken. It was a long process. It took a long time and was very messy. And I did not want to eat the chicken when I was done with it. I was done with the chicken. It's like, you're over it. I'm going gonna, gonna to go, go eat some carrots now because... That was a long time and very messy and involved boiling water, which they never, I mean, yeah, anyway. You don't see that no, part in the movie. No, you don't. You, you don't. It's just like, you, you see someone like pulling a few feathers off and then like the next which cut is a roast chicken on a table. Doesn't work, by the way. <laughs> just saying. No, you have to do so much more than that. And poultry skin is so thin. I'm, I, we shouldn't go down the butchery rabbit hole no. <laughs> too far. You're, you're, you're poor listeners. Um, but no, this is, I mean, like... Uh, no, this is what they're here it's for. They have, this is... as, as, as I'm, I'll slap a general content warning on the thing. It'll be fine. As I'm sure all of your podcast guests inevitably bring up in Sun Tzu's The Art of War, he talks about <laughs> how there's, like, an army can only be so big un- until a point at which they can no longer transport the amount of food that they need to sustain the army. Like, the size of your army is limited because there comes a point at which the amount of food you need to feed the horses is more than the horses can pull. And I feel like every adventuring party needs this, like this math to just go, okay, there's only X amount of pigeons in the forest. We can only bring so much pigeon preparation material to get this much pigeon meat off of it. <laughs> your, your listeners can't see me. I'm holding my fingers like an inch apart. <laughs> it's a teeny little drumstick. It's real. Like the food math is real. It's important. Sooner or later, everything seems to come down to math, which yeah. makes it all the more surprising that I chose this as a career path. But <laughs> yeah, they didn't tell me that at the time. It's like, be a writer. It's like, oh, that sounds great. Oh, there's math involved. Dang. No one. But it is like, I, I found myself trying to figure out like baggage trains across Spain and like, how far can we get? How much can we source locally? How much can we source locally without pissing people off? Like, <laughs> at what point do you have to start stealing from the locals and... It's, there's so many calculations, especially when it's something the size of an army that consumes so freaking much, even if it's just people. And then, yeah, if you've got um, cavalry on top of that, then just forget about it. There's there's almost never going to be enough food wherever you are for all of them. Yeah, which, I mean, I think inevitably leads to violence, because when there's not enough food, violence kind of comes out of that, especially if you've got an already violent force. It's part of why I think you kind of can't have a benevolent army coming into a space because they, especially they can't if they're ha- hungry. Yeah. Well, they, 
<laughs> they just they can't bring enough supplies for themselves. So where are they going to get those from? Probably not anywhere you want them to get those supplies from. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. They have like whole systems in the British army of like licensing local people to go in and sell to them like 18th, 19th century. You had to like get your petty sutler license and then you could go into the army camps and like sell your stuff. And that was, I mean, they were getting a lot of their food that way because they would get their rations, but that wasn't really, it might've been enough calorically, but it may not have been particularly pleasant to eat. So then you're like, I could really go for some fresh carrots and some cheese on top of this. And then you got to buy that separately and get that. Maybe an acorn cap full of wine. That would be lovely. I'm just thinking. I'm just brainstorming. <laughs> it would really make everything like. a lot better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Naomi Novik goes into a lot of that in the Temeraire series with feeding the dragons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not just the people, but like enough food to feed dragons in your army. And like, especially then when they put the dragon on a boat and it's out on <laughs> out at sea. And, and it's like, hmm, can we find big enough fish for it? <laughs> if we put the fish and the dragon on the boat at the same time, is the boat going to capsize? <laughs> Like with this like whale and this dragon on it. it's It sort of took those considerations to a new level, which I think is something that fantasy does a lot. It, it magnifies um, the regular considerations when you add magic or add dragons. It makes those calculations even bigger and more noticeable. Dragons do have a way of magnifying just about every problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like I had a problem, so I threw a Molotov cocktail at it, and then I had a different problem. But it's like I threw a, I threw a dragon at it. Threw a dragon at it. I, I had a very very different problems. Very different problem. What is a dragon if not a self automating Molotov cocktail? Pretty much. I think a key point of there's a difference between there's enough calories to keep us alive versus. These calories are going to be interesting and worth eating <laughs> in any other way. Like that's that's I think another big factor of like there may be enough food, quote unquote enough, but will you still have a riot on your hands because nobody wants to eat, eat that or go through the process of what it's going to take to get enough pigeon meat off those pigeons to <laughs> to to keep themselves alive. Yeah. I feel like I am the author on that like ecliptical edge of that Venn diagram in that I just I don't care that much about food. I could pretty happily eat lembas bread all, all the time, I think. I'd be like, <laughs> all right, one one bite in the morning, one bite in the evening, and I'm good all day. That sounds fine. It's not that I don't appreciate good food, but I don't need it in the same way. So like a magical bread that is just stays good and fills you up, I'm like, yes, that's where it is for me. <laughs> but I recognize that I'm not normal. <laughs> Right there, like Sam's just like, yeah, this is you know, this is fine in terms of we're not hungry, but I am bored as fuck over eating the limbus. Got to make a stew. (laughs) Just have to make a stew. I think that in a lot of a lot of human civilization, broadly speaking, not in terms of individual uh, food preferences, but in terms of kind of social movement, I think that choice is the key. Because there's so many people who can happily eat the same thing over and over again. But we also see throughout history so many places where people who have the choice of what to eat taken away from them completely lose it. There were prison riots in the early 1900s over lobster because prisoners were being fed lobster. And it was Mm -hmm. like the garbage food. Um, They were like, it was sea bug. No one wants to eat that. Feed it to prisoners. And they were eating lobster every day. And... I know so many people personally who are like eating lobster every day. I would love that kind of life. But taking the choice away and then making someone eat the same thing every day causes people to to rebel and revolt in ways that 
few things can, which I think is, I think it's a fascinating thing about humans that we're like, I don't mind eating the same cereal every day for breakfast, but you don't get to tell me I have to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's fascinating too, like the perception of like, what is garbage food and what is considered fine dining? Like, cause lobster was, a lot of seafood was just considered like, just, I mean, it's trash, you know, like it's, it's cheap food. Oysters were considered just like, you just go buy cheap oysters if you're, you know, poor and have a few pennies to spend that's what you eat sushi was the trash food we, you know we, we don't even bother to cook this eat shut up <laughs> <laughs> and, and and i mean and now obviously lobster is that's right like, you know the surf and turf fancy special yeah or like jambalayas and gumbos it's like here's stuff we scraped off the bottom of the river and now we're going to charge you 30 dollars <laughs> for it at galatoire's <laughs> like it's it, it does change over time, and, and that's a, that is a fascinating thing to interrogate. Like, why do those changes happen? What, what transforms mm-hmm. a food from ordinary to extraordinary? I started noticing a couple of years ago, this might be too much of a transgression, in which case feel free to completely eliminate me from this podcast and pretend you didn't have a guest. I noticed a few years ago that lobster was in a lot of kind of fast, casual dining. There was a place that opened around the corner from my little apartment called Lobster and Beer, and all of the dishes were lobster-centric. And I was like, what is happening? And a friend of mine heard me asking this question that I thought was a, you know, kind of a like, like lofty, like, we'll never know the answer to this question. My friend sat me down and said, do you want to know why? And I said, yeah, sure, tell me. Thinking that this was going to be some big social thing. And my friend told me that a guy invented a machine that shucks lobsters, like corn cobs, like it just the whole shell off and because that was the labor intensive part of lobster now lobster's cheap because you can you can just get the meat like boom oh my god i love that the intersection of technology and food that's amazing think about it all the time i think about it the same amount that i think about the squid balls is that is a lobster shucking machine (laughs) the lobster shucking that must be unpleasant to clean that mm. (laughs) which yes both are true. But I think also like the fanciness sometimes is just like what you choose to call a thing. And if a fancy enough person decides they like a thing. And I'm thinking about the scene in which book is it in? Oh, it's in Hogfather. It, it's in Discworld and in, in the Pratchett novels. And, and death is being Santa Claus. And so he takes away the nice food from the fancy restaurant and gives it to poor people. And the chef in the fancy restaurant is suddenly like, what am I going to feed people? And he's like, wait, I got this. And he makes everyone take off their boots and starts like doing fancy things with the boot leather. <laughs> He's like, it's still cow. It's essentially the same. And he starts giving it all these fancy, like, you know, faux French names. And it's like, this is uh, Pied de Terre a la something. And it's like, just tell them. They won't know the difference. (laughs) People out there will eat whatever we, they'll eat whatever we plate artfully in front of them and call it something fancy. And it was just a very, very funny commentary on on that, that we'll, we'll pay more for it if we think it's fancy. I mean, so many restaurants today are basically just like putting stuff that, Nobody would, they make the menu so you don't even understand what you're getting. <laughs> Just like, yes, bring that. And then they put it in front of you and it looks great. So you're like, okay, this this must be good. Like a lot of the farm to table restaurants are like using the parts of things that most restaurants haven't been using in a long time. And are just like, no, we're going to do something creative with this. And there you go. And you're like, oh, I suppose this will be delicious. Why not? And Not to continue being on my bullshit, but I... I... <laughs> I think that this is... You're here to be on your bullshit. I'm going to be on top of a mountain of my own bullshit so high that you won't even be able to see me on the Zoom screen anymore. Um, Excellent. I think that this is a way that imperialism and colonization, like, disguise themselves, is through the language of 
fancy, elevated, here's how we talk about what we stole from people who we put in a position to have to eat things that they didn't want to. And when they use their ingenuity to come up with a way for that thing to be tasty, then we pluck it away from them and rename it and strip all of the history away from it to present it to people as fanciness. And that process to me is is fascinating to behold. I I eat meat and I get my meat from a, a ranch that's local to me that does the whole process of like from the cow is born to the cow arrives to me in pieces. And so I buy a quarter of a steer at a time. And you get to see the entire cow in the way the cuts that you get are labeled differently depending on how small they are. So they'll cut a smaller portion to be like like a filet mignon is a part of a larger part of the animal. And when you look at that larger part of the animal, you can recognize parts of the animal that are cooked differently and some of which are, are cooked in ways that are like low and slow and, and intended to break down collagen, which is historically considered kind of an undesirable texture um, in in a lot of white American cuisine until you braise it to get that collagen to break down to get a tender piece of meat. And that process is not historically necessarily valued by wealthy people, but then you bring it into a fancy restaurant, you rename it, you tell people this is osobuco, and it's like, great, here's a $40 plate of food that was invented by someone who needed to come up with a way of making this this part of the shank fun to eat. I told you it was going to be all my bullshit. Yeah. I'm, I'm no, just, it's great. Great. Oh my god. This bullshit is where yes. we live. What it makes me think too about when you talk about like different parts of the animal, how much I think most of us in American culture ignore and discard most of the parts. Like when we eat beef, we're eating like the ground chuck, the hamburger, the steak, but there's always other pieces. And and throughout history, most people would be like I'm going to use every piece of this I can get because I need, once again, I need all those calories <laughs> for the work I'm doing. I'm not going to let any bit of this that might be slightly edible go to waste. Well, and it's, it's funny, too, because I, I also get like a quarter of a cow at a time and like a half a lamb. And it's funny because lots of like, do you want the organ meat? Because plenty of people don't. And I'm like, well, heck, yes, we're going to figure out how to cook that tongue <laughs> because it's there and we're going to do it. Because, yeah, like we, we don't. We don't eat a lot. And a lot of it is actually like, I, I know it's it's a gross thought for a lot of Americans, but brains have historically been eaten in many parts of the world. And there's some of the highest calories, nutrients, you know, animals, if they're going to eat a critter, often go for the head first because that's got the most good stuff in it. I mean, brains and organs are are places where the body stores so much fat. Fat is one of the most calorically dense parts of a body. And so if you put, if you think of this on a smaller scale, if you put the time and effort into an animal that you're raising for food and you give it the resources that you have and the time and energy that you have to raise it up, the idea of discarding any part of it is completely bonkers. And when you think about discarding parts, like again, the collagen that have so much nutrients and so much caloric value, it's like, why did you even raise this animal for meat? If you're gonna not actually get the meat out of it, yeah. I mean, admittedly, I, I do question the value of cooking the chicken feet. That was the one experiment that I did. That I'm like, this maybe, maybe this wasn't worth it. Aww. This may not have been worth. <laughs> we are enemies. I love chicken feet. Really? Oh, it was just. It was a lot chicken. of work. It was a lot of work for like 
You couldn't see that. I just, I just, I just had a tiny little, <laughs> made a little eating, tiny little corn on the cob noise. I don't know what that was. That was ridiculous. <laughs> okay, well, you, you can have my chicken feet from now on. I will, I will send them to you. I will always take your chicken feet. I think that, <laughs> I think that there's so much value, especially to be found in ex- exploring areas of global cuisine that cook meats in ways we're not familiar with, which is my experience of chicken feet. My experience of chicken feet is all in Asian cooking, which is not the cooking <laughs> tradition that I come from and not the cooking tradition I'm most personally familiar with executing. And so I'm sure that if I tried to cook chicken feet in my home, I would have a complete crisis of self-confidence because <laughs> I think of myself as a good cook. But also, I, I know that I can't touch the heights that literally any dim sum restaurant can accomplish with chicken feet. Oh, now I just want now I just want chicken feet. We messed up, guys. We made a huge mistake. <laughs> it makes me wonder if if when we think about like projecting forward into a sci-fi context and and things like Star Trek replicators and, and stuff, where you can have whatever food you want, whatever part of the animal you want, without actually having to harm the animal. And and I personally greatly look forward to this day. But will will we get more boring or will we get more interesting with our food when when we can completely choose what of the animal we want. Will it only be like cheeseburgers forever? Or will we start replicating the interesting parts of the animal? I, I, I have no idea how that might someday go. I mean, it is interesting that I feel like most of the, the meat replacement stuff we already have focuses on the burgers, the breakfast sausage. You know, there's I have I have not seen the the impossible chicken foot yet. It's the impossible burger. <laughs> I hope you do though. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that this is a matter of texture because ground meat texture is so much easier to imitate than especially whole right. meat and especially um, the grain of meat. And again, that collagen texture is it's so hard to replicate well. Though that does make me think about how often the replicator and the food it creates on Star Trek is presented as no more than just fine like yeah you can replicate anything you want and it's gonna be fine but nothing more than that and i think this ties in partly to star trek's own obsession with like the pastoral as being some sort of ideal it often goes back to like that a life of just like simple farming going back to a pre-industrial technology is a goal even and I, I i find that fascinating like it just now on picard where they have the you know, the cast traveling back to our time and one of the characters is just like eating a hot dog on the street and just commenting like the you know the food is so much better here it's a point they hit again and again on the show that replicated food is not quote-unquote real and everyone knows that but it's fine but i think you're right i think there is something interesting if like if you can have anything are you going to make interesting choices or stay with safe choices that you know you're going to like how often do people eat something new or strange or scary because they didn't have any other options i read um Gabrielle Hamilton, she's the chef who who runs Prune in in Manhattan. And I read her memoir where she was the youngest of five children. And when she was a teenager, her parents divorced. And because of the way the parents divorced and all of her older siblings were actually adults, her parents were both kind of like, well, the kids are grown and we'll just go our own way. And so she at 14 was just left alone in the house for months (laughs) and thus learned how to cook and cook like whatever she could throw together because she would just be like what's left in the pantry 
how can I make this into something palatable? And that informed her culinary techniques of just like, I am hungry and this is all that's here. What can I make to make this into something palatable? My grocery store avoidance technique. (laughs) (laughs) This was something that I, uh, most people who I, who I know who enjoy cooking at all experienced early in the pandemic when we were striving to avoid the grocery store for uh, disease reasons, as opposed to my usual reason, which is it's too stressful. And I don't, don't want to go in there. Um, <laughs> is you end up opening up culinary doors you've never opened up before and having to experience that through trauma or neglect is terrible. But again, I, I do, I do really value the way that human beings do that. Human beings, I feel like, are so resourceful and also so lazy, like, depending on what we <laughs> what we need to be. Like, when we have to be, we're incredibly resourceful. When life is convenient, we tend to get lazy. And, yeah, I don't know. And one thing that the concept of, of scarcity and abundance makes me think of, too, is seasonality. And just how much seasonality doesn't so much play into our lives anymore, but was a huge part of our lives historically and in other parts of the world that that don't do like you know refrigerated truck farming like we do um and just how much you know just how much creativity has to come into well we've got a bumper crop of asparagus right now and that's what we're going to be eating because that's what we've got and by the way this is the only time we get to enjoy it so let's let's have fun and then we're gonna we're going to can a ton of it, and then we're going to be eating a lot of canned asparagus <laughs> for, the, for the next six months. I mean, even, I mean, even canning doesn't even come in until, like, the 19th century. Like, I mean, you've got salting things and drying things and... and fermentation. Man, just, fermentation. Oh, dear. I just, I just imagined, like, asparagus wine. <laughs> mm. Pickling. Mm. I, I, love, I love pickling things. Well, and storing things in vinegar is, is, has so much historical precedent. Like, we, we love storing stuff in vinegar as a species. I mean, it is delicious. So, Often you know, it's understandable. And, like, lasts a good long time. I mean, the things you can do with eggs, it's fascinating. I'm, I have been, over the last couple of years, as I've been kind of anticipating supply chain collapse... I've been learning more about gardening and growing food, which has forced me into this seasonality mindset, which is like a really wild pivot to make. I grow arugula. And if you're familiar with arugula, you know that the phrase I grow arugula means I have a big problem because arugula grows so much and so fast. It like, it reaches a point where it's like, it's like, Ooh, look, it's like little, they look like little clovers. And then all of a sudden it's a monstrous, like huge hedge of arugula. And if you let it grow too fast, it'll bolt, which means that it go it tries to flower and then go to seed and reproduce. And when it bolts, it gets extremely spicy. It gets very, very spicy. It gets this peppery spiciness, this like horseradishy spiciness that it just gets inedible at a certain point. Um, and as a result, you have to figure out how to preserve arugula and arugula is it's it's a green it's a leafy green I'm, and i was like you can't fucking preserve arugula what am i gonna do i'm i'm <laughs> foisting sacks of arugula on my friends i'm like making my family eat so much arugula and they're like please god can we have some other food item and i'm like no it's arugula <laughs> and finally a friend of mine passed me a recipe for arugula chimichurri that freezes well i was like thank god so now i have an entire year like the rest of my year's worth of arugula <laughs> In this chimichurri in my big chest freezer, where I also keep all my all my cow parts, 
that I've that I've accepted. But it, it's just it just makes you realize like, oh, this is where all these traditions of preserves come from is you've got more of something than anyone wants to eat. You're like, how do I have this later? You're, you have 51 weeks of nothing and one week of everything. <laughs> you also have like these like traditions of like these festivals. Like it's the strawberry festival or the pumpkin festival or you know whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, because at some point this town had way too many damn strawberries, and we're like making as much jam as we can, but we have to eat these things, so we're gonna make it into a party, and y'all are gonna eat strawberries until they're coming out of your ears and. We're gonna we're gonna call it fun and and you're gonna have fun, darn it. I've been I've grown okra a few seasons and like with okra there's like the day that you have to harvest <laughs> it. Like if you wait if you wait till tomorrow it's gonna be hard and nasty and you'll never want to eat it. But if so today's the day get out there and get the okra or it's just or you might as well throw it away. <laughs> but I think I think this leads us to a good like world building consideration question when you talk about preserving goods, where are you putting it? Where, where do your characters keep their food or where do they go to get their food? I mean, like most of us these days, except for people who have cows in their freezers, um, are more used to keeping, <laughs> quote unquote, most of our food at the store. We get what we need for a very short period of time and, and bring it home. But mostly it's being stored for us elsewhere. I was listening to a um, is one of the great courses um, recently about like the development of cities and how one of the biggest things in early cities are the granaries and where do you put the granaries and who has control of the granaries and are they centrally located are they kept like with the rich people do the rich people like say yes i will keep city food here for a fee like because i have the space and then the you know whatever figuring that out figuring out where we keep the excess food is a huge logistical problem for um populations especially as they grow in size well storing food isn't I, I used to think of it as being as simple as having room. And it's so much more complex than that because of the classic, you know, villain of human food storage vermin. Um, and not just my, I have ugh, my nemesis of, of my entire life is pantry moths. And they're these, these little tiny, teeny, teeny, tiny brown moths. And they go and they lay eggs everywhere inside your cupboard. And then those eggs hatch into little larvae that get into all your dry goods. And so I had one day where I... Every, all of them. All of them. It's awful. It happened to me once. It's the worst. And so you have to store all of your stuff in airtight containers, but some of the airtight containers aren't airtight enough. And my solution to this, by the way, has been to uh, periodically release parasited wasps in my home that are microscopic wasps that go and and lay their eggs inside the caterpillar eggs so the caterpillars don't hatch and turn into moths and i guess you've got more wasps but at least they don't go in the rice i feel like you just wrote me a little horror story right there just on the fly my home is full of wasps (laughs) <laughs> they're so tiny you can't even see them they could be anywhere see, that's that's oh god oh no oh but, you know, i mean we've developed entire entire social relationships with other species of animals in an effort to solve this problem and even that's not enough to keep you know the mice out of your your cellar where you keep all your preserves or the rats out of your pantry where you've put all your potatoes up 
And so, or, or even just dampness, you know, even keeping water out of places is a yeah. huge challenge. And just moisture, yeah. just moisture, which is why we have cheese. We were like, oh, <laughs> yeah. we're storing this, we're storing this, this weird hard milk in a cave. No problem. Oops, there's moisture. Now you have brie. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> And yet again, I was I was come back to the first person who ate that was a teenager and a dare. Like you just know it. Like <laughs> we have we have teenagers to thank for most of the delicious food that we eat because Tommy was bet five bucks to eat it and he didn't die. Or you've got a you've got a starving village and Og draws the short straw to find out <laughs> if that leaf is edible or not. And you hope yes. But if not, sorry Og. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this before, about, like, various cultures have done miraculous things with, you know, the plants near them or whatever to make them from deadly to edible. That A to B to C, that, well, figuring that out is amazing, but also, like, wow, you, you, really, wanted, you really wanted to eat that, didn't you? <laughs> that you were like, no, 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 this time we'll add a third step and it's gonna work this time. <laughs> yeah, we've already lost 20 people. This has to work. Let's keep trying. The one that always gets me is um, stinging nettle. Stinging nettle, super great, delicious, great to eat, but you have to... You have to boil it in order to get the stinging nettle part off. And the stinging nettle part really stings. <laughs> it's really bad. You touch it and you're like, oh, terrible. So how desperate do you have to be to be like, in spite of that, I will make this into food. <laughs> <laughs> and what things were tried before the boiling? You're like, maybe if we hit it enough times. No. <laughs> nope. Still bad. Still bad. Once you get past the stinging, it's actually delicious. <laughs> There's like the there's the tasty undertaste. How I feel about awesome. every IPA. <laughs> Everyone's like, I promise you'll like it. And I'm like, oh, no, still, worth it? No. Still no, tastes like no. flesh and cigarette ash. Starry. But there are so many stories of the history of food where it definitely sounds like a dare was involved or a dare actually was involved. Which, I mean, I know that's the case with the history of Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> Guys just mixed up some stuff and left it in a barrel for a year and then found it again. And we're like, well, you taste it. No, you taste it. <laughs> hey, that's not bad. I'm so, I am so enamored of the history of sauces. Especially in, in Britain and in Western European countries. Because of the way that trade with Asia influenced those sauces in such a like a like baroque way where you know they the 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 uh, name for fish sauce originally uh, in its original language said like ketchup how it's pronounced and that's where ketchup came from like ketchup comes from that filtration of fish sauce where sailors were having fish sauce with stuff and we're like oh hell yeah this is great went home we're like i have none of those ingredients no idea how to make this I'm going to do my best. I've got mushrooms and uh, water and uh, tobacco spit. Like, I don't know. Let me just put as many things together as I can <laughs> to try and make this sauce. And so you've got historically, like, Victorian, really, a, a really popular condiment was mushroom ketchup, which was a condiment made from mushrooms that was supposed to try and recreate the memory of fish sauce as filtered through years of sailing and whatever happens to your brain when you're subjected to a British <laughs> naval diet for years at a time. 
And so we end up with like things like this Worcestershire sauce bet, which I'm sure <laughs> happened because some people were like, okay, 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 okay. All right. Okay, so I know that it was brown. <laughs> and I know it was a liquid. <laughs> and I bet we can get it from there. Uh, pretty much that is how it went. And and in the other direction, I remember reading, I think it's Macau, which was settled by Portuguese. And then the locals were like, well, the, you know, these Portuguese who've taken us over, they want us to make these meals that they remember from home. We have none of these ingredients. So we'll just we'll just do our best <laughs> with what we have to mimic the food they want. <laughs> and thus came up with a whole cuisine uh, that is sort of this fusion of Portuguese, Asian, Asian cuisine. And, and that sort of stuff fascinates me. Being able to integrate that, those sorts of concepts into your world building, I think is amazing. And I think it's like fascinating too, that like you, you know, I mean, you hit like, like five different elements in like one example of trade and people moving and migration and, absorbing other cultures food ways and combining them with your own and it's like people don't just stay in one spot and when they move they take their food with them half the time and try to transplant it where they go or they pick up ways that other people are cooking and and adapt it to their own i mean how long did it take for the tomato to become something that was used like so dominantly in Italian culture. Like it's not from there, but it didn't take long to become something that was heavily integrated into the cuisine to the point that now we think Italian food, tomatoes, of course, that just goes together. So it's same with basil. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that the, the legacy of colonization and especially in the United States, the legacy of, of slavery in cuisine can't be overlooked. I think we, I think Americans have a huge discomfort with naming that because we don't like to, white Americans especially, don't like to acknowledge this part of our social history and how much forced transportation of people to a place that, again, like you said, uh, doesn't have the foods that they're familiar with. Um, it influences a cuisine for, for centuries. And, you know, as you were saying, Marshall, like colonizers showing up and saying you have to make food for us that's familiar to us, to people who haven't eaten that food and don't have those ingredients, creates a whole cuisine that's in conversation with the process of colonization and and trauma. And it just it it's a I think an intergenerational legacy of food and recipes that spring out of survival. I mean, yeah, we want to talk about like, I, damn humans are creative and often coming from situations that I would never want to put humans into. Have you read any of Michael Twitty's stuff um, on Southern American cooking? Um, he does yes. like historical food ways and like, it's very, very cool. Yeah, he's fantastic. Because you, and it's amazing because you have African food ways combining with ingredients that are available in the colonies, combining with European food ways too, and just all kind of like these amazing mashups that, you know, we still enjoy today and just think of it as American quote unquote food, but it's really coming from all these amazing antecedents. I think that really strong world building brings that history into a world unflinchingly and says, you know, where, 
where did all these traditions come from, even in the moments when it's uncomfortable to acknowledge, even when in the moments that acknowledge the, the oppressive roots of a society, being able to say, yeah, here's how people made do with with what they had in terrible circumstances, and here's the way that now that's a food that I think of as comforting, I think can be so powerful. And we've talked before, too, about like ways to introduce the idea of of history and, and a lived-in quality to your world. And I think you're right. Food is one of those ways to absolutely dig deep into that and show the merging of traditions over time so that your world doesn't feel static. It doesn't feel like it, it just woke up one day as it is with everything in place where it is. It is something that has changed over time and will continue to change in the future, even after somebody closes the last page of what you've written. I feel like it's fun, too, that if you can write a meal in the world that you're writing, all of the things that you must know about that world to write that meal, right? Like, you know where the food's coming from. You know if it's local or if it's imported. You know if it's fresh or if it's been preserved. You know who's preparing it and why and what kinds of labor divisions that implies about the world. Like there's just all these different layers that get to that moment that you show someone sitting down with other people or without other people and putting a bite of food in their mouth. Like we talk about the iceberg of like the things you show on the page versus everything happening underneath and like food, there's a lot of stuff happening underneath that if you've been thoughtful, you've decided all kinds of stuff about your world climate, topography, trade, technology. This is something I think about every time. And again, this is more, this is me heaping more onto bullshit mountain as I perch atop it. But I think about this constantly when I read huge feasts in high fantasy, because historically huge feasts like that were, especially we have the, we have records of this in medieval times, were flex. There were recipes that were like, 1,000 peppercorn duck. And you're using 1,000 peppercorns to stud the outside of this duck. And it's not because that's delicious. It's because it's like, hey, look how many look how many fucking peppercorns I got. How many peppercorns do you have? Not as many as me. I can waste them on this. It was, it was the, culinary, the culinary equivalent of a parade, where parades have historically been used not to be like, look how fun our community is, but to be like, look how many standing troops we have. And it's like, look, I have... I'm serving you a cake made with 85 oranges. Woo, where'd I get those oranges? Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> and so whenever I read these huge, like, sprawling fantasy feasts that are kind of just like a sensory orgy, I'm always like, where'd you get all those lemons? Where'd you get those peacocks? What are you trying to tell me? It's like, stop, I'm, I'm already intimidated. It's fine. You don't have to do this. Well, I think, too, it's fun to think about, like, when we think about where those things came from, and how did we get them? That obviously leads us to the trade networks, but they don't just always go go one way, and a single city doesn't have just one trade route. If you live someplace that the soil does not naturally make both potatoes and pineapples, but you have a dish that has potatoes and pineapples in it, then that means you've got two separate, you know, flowing trade things. You know, one one more potatoey and one more tropical pineapple. Yes, I have a, I have one big question for you. I have one really important question. What is this cursed dish? I don't know. I'm not uninterested. I'm I'm, I'm here for it, but I have to know. What what is this? No, yeah. I told y'all I wasn't good at what food. Is this, what is this Hawaiian pizza style gnocchi dish you're making? No, like 
there's can, a, isn't there a kind of you curry can put anything that has, in like, a sauce in and it comes together really? with don't enough you know stewing. No, I told y'all I wasn't good at food. <laughs> I'm just saying hypothetically, yeah, curry curry can support any ingredient combination, and I would happily eat a curry that has potato and pineapple in it. I mean, I have a mole recipe that uses pineapple, so I mean, you could certainly you could certainly like a potato mole. No pineapple mole. Yeah, no, I know, but then you would put potatoes. The mole would go yes. over that, and so then pineapples and potatoes. Now we brought them together. We did it. We accomplished it. We united these foods. Okay, all right. Cass, did you? My only point was that if you have access to both, like, you know, cold weather, dry climate foods, and hot weather, wet climate, you know, wet climate foods, different types of things grow in different types of areas then that says something about the the reach of your world, the, the centrality, perhaps, of whatever location you're in. Um, and it may or may not, depending on, on how extensive and how convenient that trade network is, say something about the wealth of the characters <laughs> who can do that. Is it an impressive thing that, that they can make an insane <laughs> potato pineapple dish? Or is it like, oh, yeah, I picked that up at the Quickie Mart. Everyone can make that. Like, how, how common are the ingredients that aren't local to your region is it easy to get them or is it super hard is it a flex um yeah well i I think that in circling back to the idea of using world building to recognize the places where the world we live in isn't inevitable that kind of trade doesn't have to happen through force it doesn't have to happen through imperialism we have tons of records throughout history of people engaging in trade I mean, it was relative friendliness uh, internationally. You know, I'm sure that there were people who were grouchy at each other in this process, but, you know, without having to completely oppress another uh, another group of people in order to get your hands on the spices that they have. And I think that there's so much room for world building that allows that com- that communication, that culinary communication between cultures to be something that doesn't involve colonization and violence so i feel like we've talked about a lot of the ways in which world building is informed by and informs food in thinking about it you know food doesn't have to be a low stakes background thing either i mean food can bring a lot of stakes into stories that you create in the world that you have and we were just talking about you know Issues of armies getting enough food, prison riots, things like that. I mean, you can just imagine all the ways in which food can, in fact, be the story, not just be the background of a story. Like, how do we solve the the upcoming famine that we're anticipating? And, you know, what can, what, what can we do to, to, do we have to take over people? Do we have to bring something that, you know, try something new that we've never eaten before again. How hungry are <laughs> I mean, we? Food, in all kinds of ways, is a catalyst for change in a lot of situations. Food and having enough of it and having the right kind of it, I think, is one of the most fundamental pieces of, of civilization and human society and the way that we build culture. And again, I think diet culture has really bled some of our understanding of that away from us. But ultimately, so many things come down to food. I mean, there's a reason that when we talk about both bread and circuses and bread and roses, bread comes first. It matters. It's important. And you can you can build so many stories just on that, just on food. I mean, down to mass migrations of people and, and the actual collapse of civilizations, there, there are theories that 
some of the earliest Sumerian cities collapsed because there was um, bad weather for enough. It was climate change, essentially. It was very, it was um, not in that case human generated, but there was something that changed the climate significantly enough that the food sources changed too rapidly for them to adapt to and the civilizations collapsed. Or a lot of the um, Celtic and Germanic tribes in Europe, when they moved and, and put pressure on other people and pressure on other people, and then Rome got angry and all those things, like that's that clash happened because of poor harvests far north, they think. And like one set of people moved and then they displaced somebody else and they displaced and this whole sort of chain reaction that changed the entire face of what Europe looked like at the time. Because somebody ran out of wheat in one particular area of, of where they were. And we talk so much about land as being an important thing geopolitically, but why do you need land? I mean, a lot of times it's for food production. I mean, I, I have argued and will continue to argue that one of the major causes of the American Revolution wasn't taxation. It was because they said you can't cross the Appalachian Mountains. <laughs> and having been there, a bunch of people came back and said, no, we want that. That's good farmland. Don't tell us move north into Rocky, Nova Scotia, move south into Georgia swamps. No, we've seen that. And that's good farmland. And we want to go there. I want to go to there. You know, forgetting about the people that are going to displace to do so. But, you know, that this is motivation. Land is not just because it's there. It's because you can grow stuff on it. I mean, even just the, the, the history of human movement in early, early, early human history is driven by us pursuing food. That's that's what makes us go where we go, and that's what makes us stay where we stay. So, Sarah, you may not remember this, but I definitely remember when we first met. Uh-oh. Oh, dear. <laughs> because it was in that interstitial time between you having sold your first book and it coming out. And so you were were so expressive talking about the hippos. And how the hippos almost came to America. And it was the most, del- and that's why it's stuck in my memory so strongly, <laughs> because you're just brilliant in talking about this period in American history, which you then exploited for, for your first book, where the hippos were this close to being <laughs> let loose in the wild in the world. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to talk about food forming the stakes for for an entire story this is a prime example i think actually yeah it is and at that that time when we met is so funny to me to remember um because everyone who i talked to i was like oh i sold this novella and everyone was like ew nobody's reading or writing novellas publishers don't want novellas readers don't want novellas and i was like well it's a western and everyone was like ew nobody wants westerns and i just remember sitting there like they will they will want it. And you were right. Yes. You were right. The world didn't know that it needed those hippos, but it sure did. <laughs> right, tell so us about I, the hippos. Should I, should I share the... I feel like I'm I being... Think, I think you should tell thing. us about the right, hippos. I'll tell you about the hippos. Uh, so in... Uh, oh my gosh. I, I haven't talked about this in so long that I have to climb down off Bullshit Mountain to remember how not <laughs> to make it take like an hour and a half for me to explain this. There's a period of time in American history during which actually uh, that expansion into the good farmland past the Appalachian uh, Basin went pretty badly for white colonizers in America. Uh, In the early 1900s, we kind of reaped the consequences for farming practices that ignored completely indigenous people's inputs 
into the cycles of grasslands. Our grasslands had been populated by grasses that had these deep, 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 deep roots. And they held the soil onto the earth with those deep roots. And then white people came in and were like, hey, um, we're going to kill you and kick you off your land and we're going to take it and we're going to fuck it up really bad. And we plowed all these native grasses up and then planted fucking wheat and soy uh, because that was the crops that people were getting subsidies for and we're like, we can sell these, we can turn these into bread that other white people will want to eat. And the things that we planted... After we plowed up all the soil, we like loosened it up and then we planted stuff that couldn't hold the soil onto the earth. It, the, the roots were just not nearly as long. I think corn was part of that too. Don't, don't quote me on that. <laughs> you literally are quoting me because I'm on a podcast, but like, you know, probably corn, all, all the stuff that we planted. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we can, we can, we can blame yeah, corn for hard. everything. It's fine. And so we planted all this stuff and then, you know, you harvest and all those things die and then you got loose soil. And we got into this cycle of, like, there was drought involved and high winds, as there often are on big open grasslands. Like, there's a reason that people whose civilizations come from big open prairies all have, like, amazing woven clothes that keep you super warm in the high winds. Anyway, that's beside the point. That's way beside the point. So we ended up in this real pickle called the Dust Bowl that was not a good time for anybody and that caused huge food shortages in the United States. And as a result, a lot of the politics around that time were about food. We saw the increasing industrialization of American farming as farm uh, projects were consolidated, especially in California. And we saw people campaigning uh, on uh, phrases like a chicken in every pot. And the idea is you're going to have food. We were going through something called the meat crisis that was a huge problem that was ranging throughout this time period, uh, which is a long time period. I don't remember the exact dates off the top of my head, so I'm not telling you them, but trust me, it's around here. And the meat crisis was a huge political issue in the United States. There were huge debates about it. People were like, there's not enough meat. We have all these people who need to eat meat, and we can't give it to them. There's just not enough. And so this guy came up with a solution. He was like, you know what we need is... is cows are too small we need to look some really big animals and he had this great idea to solve the meat crisis and another problem at the same time the secondary problem was an invasive species of flower called the water hyacinth which had been introduced to the united states during a world fair and then discarded in a waterway it was reproducing like crazy and it was choking off the mississippi the water hyacinth is incredibly efficient at propagation um, it propagates underwater so predation from above water by creatures that might eat it can't get it the roots grow bonkers fast it's like i want to say they can grow like three meters in a couple days like they're just huge and they form these big mats and the mississippi river at this time was one of our primary trade routes we were sending boats up and down the mississippi river and then there was all this fucking water hyacinth and the boats were like I can't get through. There's all this water hyacinth. What am I going to do? And so this genius guy was like, here's what we do. We import hippos. We put the hippos in the Mississippi. They eat the water hyacinth. Then we eat the hippos. And everybody wins except for the hippos and the water hyacinth who have like demonstrably not won. But we have enough meat. We have enough meat for everyone. Hippos are great to eat. They're just like kind of like big 
higgledy pigs and we just we bring them over they solve all our problems um interfering with uh entire ecosystems is a good smart idea and the problem is that at the time most american politicians agreed with him they're like oh yeah we gotta interfere with ecosystems it's so simple we gotta do that yeah (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? That'll solve all of our problems. The biggest problem is that, like, no one's read the Bible to these forests, you know? And no one has gotten the bears baptized. We have to go do that. And he was like, so, yeah, let's just interfere with these ecosystems. And everyone was like, yeah, interfere with the ecosystems. Give them. And this this was a, a very genuine consideration. There's a, You can find in historical archives uh, advertisements in favor of this bill, which was colloquially called the hippo bill, even though it also suggested importing ostriches and camels and emus. Um, it was basically like exotic large animals. Bring them here, we'll eat them. And yeah, it, murder birds, that's a great idea. Why, what, yeah, what could go wrong? We've got American ingenuity. <laughs> and so you can see historical advertisements advertising the future of lake pig bacon, which is what they were calling hippo meat at the time. Um and people that's not great branding (laughs) people were so on board people were like oh my god i would eat a lake pig hell yeah and then someone else came in to the the places where these conversations were happening was like hey so i've been to africa before and everybody was like no you haven't no one's been to africa and he was like i've been to africa i've been to africa and i can tell you that hippos are really scary they'll they'll eat you they'll kill you and eat you and all these, you know, white male American politicians were like, oh, no, they won't. We're Americans. We have know-how. We can make ranches. It'll go great. <laughs> and this came to a vote. And the bill didn't pass by one vote. We were within one vote of this bill passing and having what I I think I'm not being far-fetched in imagining. A land rush, gold rush style, sudden eruption of hippopotamus ranches people trying to do what white americans have done since we showed up here which is say oh my gosh the government's giving me a subsidy and saying that if i kill some indigenous peoples and take their land i can keep it as long as i plant enough apple trees which is where the legend of johnny appleseed comes from uh we had this rule that you had to have an orchard on your land for a certain amount of time in order to claim it as your own and so People were claiming land and then planting the things that were most likely to grow, which were apples, which they got from apple seeds and saplings from this guy who floated up and down the Mississippi River on a little boat with them. That's where that comes from. So you know that people would have been like, yeah, I'm a hippo rancher now. I've got this little patch of land and I've got a little swamp on it and I'm raising hippos for meat. But hippos are, as as most of the internet knows now, <laughs> huge, murderous outrageous animals they kill for fun and that's not a hyperbolic field researchers have so many records of hippos eating crocodiles they are obligate herbivores they're not omnivores their systems are not made to eat meat any more than my system is made to eat cheese and just like me they do it anyway because they feel like it (laughs) and consequences be damned there are so many records of hippopotami jumping out of lakes and chasing people there's i've personally read the account of a man who a hippopotamus a hippopotamus chased up into a tree and then the hippo knocked the tree over in order to attack the man and there's not the man didn't pose a threat to them the crocodiles don't pose a threat to them nothing poses a threat to them because they are i cannot stress this enough gigantic murder machines made to kill 
we we see this now and people link me this all the time which fucking kills me because it was part of my research and world building for river of teeth that people are like have you heard about this that in colombia right now a very small group of hippos who the american dea so brilliantly released from pablo escobar's compound zoo where he had tropical animals they they released all these animals and most of them fucking died because they were like i'm i'm a flamingo i'm not made for this but the hippos were like great and they have taken over the waterways they have poisoned lakes with their rancid shit they are killing people there's like 60 of them now and they're feral and you can't get rid of them and so this was the foundation of the world building of river of teeth is that america came very close to doing something that historically again white colonizers in the u.s love doing which is saying i'm gonna i'm gonna fix that ecosystem by doing something that everyone who knows about the things involved is telling me not to do but i think it's smart and i can do it <laughs> hold my beer i'm gonna try anyway <laughs> We came within one vote. We came within one vote. That is just amazing. Listeners, I, I, I'm sure you can understand why this conversation stuck in my brain <laughs> so, so fully because because it was just amazing. It's amazing that they like, they almost got there. They're like, lake pig. It's one like, vote. Yes, pig. Pigs, are, pigs are terrifying, right? Like pigs can be terrifying and these are giant ones. Like you almost... You almost got it. You almost understood. So close. So Did not understand. Did not understand. It's amazing the world that almost was, and and you got to you got to give it to us. There you go, and it, everything works out great in that world. Go go read River of Teeth for a picture of an American utopia of hippos where nothing has gone wrong. <laughs> nothing at all. And and by we mean nothing has gone wrong. We mean for the hippos. <laughs> <laughs> there are some very charismatic large. hippos in the book. Some highly charismatic hippos in there as well. And they're having a great time. Yeah. Well, I feel like we have covered farm to table and then some. Um, and we end all of our guest episodes by asking our guests to um, leave us with a little souvenir that we can put into the world that we are building um, on air. So, Sarah, do you have anything for us? Do I do. Um, in the world that you're building, there exists a remote island that is far from every landmass. It's right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, let's say. Um, and if eaten very, very fresh, the peppercorns that grow only on this island give the consumer a potent, potent high that can be magical or not, based on what kind of world you're building. If dried, pickled, or preserved in any way at all, they're just very tasty. And those peppercorns are part of this world. That's excellent. I love it. Awesome. That fits. Marshall, I feel like the people of Griasta are like must be desperate <laughs> to find these peppercorns. They, and... they would be into them. They'd be, but they'd be into the, also just the, they would be. the dried, pickled, or preserved. Like, you know, they'd be like, that, that's good that's eating true. also. Yeah. But... <laughs> Say peppercorns and snails. Yeah, yep. in the part of the world that, that I've been mostly controlling, they have an island that has snails that when you lick the snails, you have this full hallucinogenic experience from licking the snails. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so you just got to feed some of those snails up on the peppercorns oh, and you're good to go. There you go. 
Right. Or imagine maybe the snails. I mean, I don't know how they taste. So maybe you like add a little peppercorn to like to, to make the, know, to make the snail licking process the, the, the a little more flavor. a little more palatable. Like taking a tequila <laughs> shot. You have, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I like this. Exactly. For it. Oh my gosh! And now we have. And now we've invented a ritual around around this this gift that you've given us, Sarah. Thank you. It is always my pleasure to help invent a ritual. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on May 25th, where Critica Rao joins us for a discussion on diving deeper into the world building rabbit hole. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're building and help us all build until it hurts.